listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. Let me extend my welcome to you. My name is Gabe. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Community Church, and it's a joy to be able to worship with you this morning. Whether you're a newcomer to King's Community Church, this is your first time here, or you've called King's Community Church uh, for the long six months that we've been meeting on Sunday morning, I'm glad that you're here worshiping with us. If you are a newcomer, I'd encourage you to fill out one of the connect cards that's by your seat. That gives us an opportunity to reach out to you and, and let you know we're glad you're here and even send you a free gift in addition to that. Uh, As a church, you heard Bonnie just share that our mission is to bring God's story to life. We believe if we do that, we'll see lives redeemed, families transformed, communities blessed, and more churches planted. That's why we exist here. And in talking about that, we, we preach through the Bible each week to compel us on that mission. And we've been going through a series called Wired for Worship. It's a series through the the beautiful and poetic book of Psalms in the Old Testament that teaches us how worship is a part of everyday life. It's a flaw to think that worship is something relegated to to some religious folks sometimes throughout life. We've been learning over the past few weeks that worship is something that we all do all the time. Today, we're talking about forgiveness as worship. Forgiveness is a subject that can be sensitive to us. Uh, Forgiveness is a subject that's near and dear to my heart uh, because of the personal experience that I've had both extending and receiving forgiveness. Even though I trusted Christ as as a sophomore in college, it took several years for me to really begin to understand the depths of what forgiveness meant to to me as as an act of worship. Uh, In fact, it was several years into marriage when my wife and I were steeped into the midst of a long season of marriage counseling where our Christ-centered counselor asked me a question, Gabe, why do you think it's so difficult for you to ask for forgiveness? You see, if there was ever conflict in marriage between me and Monica, I thought one of a few things was true. I thought either I was right and she was wrong and there was no need to ask for forgiveness You can laugh if you know Monica and I because you know that's not accurate. On the other hand, uh, sometimes I would think, well, I don't really need to ask for forgiveness. What I really need to do is just change my behavior. And then she should be grateful that I changed my behavior because that's really what she wants if there's a behavior that needs to be changed. She doesn't need me to ask for forgiveness. And the, the counselor pressed in on that for a little bit. But Gabe, why is it so difficult for you to ask if it's not that big of a deal? And I realized that to extend and receive forgiveness, there's a tremendous amount of vulnerability and possibly pride involved in the process. Because when you're asking someone to forgive you for something that you've done, you're giving them power to choose how to wield over you. And I was afraid to give even the person that I loved and covenanted to with God in marriage, to give them that power to forgive me. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we'd all say that there are times when we need to receive and extend forgiveness. But church, it's important that we understand that forgiveness becomes an act of worship when we're following the pattern of a forgiving God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Psalm 32 is a beautiful picture of forgiveness. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 32. It's about in the middle of your Bible if you open it up to that point. If you don't have it, that's all right. I'm going to read it for us. 
But the big idea that I want you to take away as we read this psalm is that forgiveness brings joy and forgiven people share the good news of forgiveness. With each and every verse we read, we're going to see that forgiveness brings joy to us. A joy that we all crave. And forgiven people share the good news of forgiveness. Let me begin reading Psalm 32 for us. It says, Psalm 32, a psalm of David who says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. These words carry a lot of weight because they're written by King David, a familiar king in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible. And he's teaching us that forgiveness brings joy. That's the first thing that he wants his audience to understand. These words don't just carry weight because David is the king. We know that David is a God-appointed king. In fact, throughout the scriptures, we hear that David is a man after God's own heart. And there are so many instances in the Bible where we see that, that David represented God and people were able to worship him because of David's obedience. However, David was also a big old sinner. <laughs> and I believe that's why these words carry weight. David was, was a God-appointed king but he's not writing these words of joy of forgiveness as a righteous man. Instead, he's writing them as a man who's experienced forgiveness. It was customary for kings uh, to be represented in battle when they had conflict with other countries. Uh, whenever there was a conflict, the winner of the battle would be the one who people would look at from all parties involved and say, God showed favor to them. Their God showed favor to them. That's how we know who the true God is. David was known as a man who would go out into the battle with his armies and be represented. Even as a king, he would go into the fight until he didn't do that. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we hear the story of a time that David hung back. And instead of going into the, the battle with his army, he stayed in his kingdom. This is a, a pivotal point in the life of David where he moved from being a servant king to a selfish king. And let me just say, we, we have these points in our lives where we have the choice to wake up and engage in the spiritual fight that's going on around us. And when we do that, even though it's difficult, we're at least engaged in the battle for the glory of God and for the good of others, just like David used to be. When we stop doing that, we transition from being servant-oriented people that are God-centered to selfish-oriented people who put ourselves first. And this story where David hung back and didn't go forward with his army tells of him not being able to sleep one night. So he's pacing in his kingdom and he looks out a window and he sees something that he likes. He sees a woman that's bathing on her rooftop. Her name is Bathsheba. And he doesn't just like what he sees in this beautiful woman. He's infatuated with it. You might say, now why on earth is she bathing on a rooftop? Well, there wasn't indoor plumbing at the time that this was written. There were baths on the rooftops to provide privacy. It was very normal what she was doing. She had no offense that we can know in her. But David is looking at her and he's captivated to the extent where the king sends his messengers to find out who, he, who she is. And they go find out her name is Bathsheba and she's married to an, a man named Uriah. But Uriah isn't home tonight. You know where Uriah is? 
he's fighting with the army to represent God in the midst of this conflict. So David sees that, that she's alone and he likes what he sees and he, he tells his messengers to bring her back to him. We don't know a lot of what the interaction between David and Bathsheba was like, but the Bible does say that he slept with her, he had sex with her, and then he sent her home. Because David's a married man and, and Bathsheba's a married woman and, and they don't want the appearances of a married woman leaving the kingdom when her husband's not home. It's got red flags all over it. She goes home and she finds out she's pregnant. Now, in the midst of this story, it's probably good for us to press pause and say, let's not mistake this interaction for, for some amicable sexual relationship. What we just heard was a story of sexual assault. Because a figure who misuses their authority to take something that doesn't belong to them from another vulnerable figure under their rule is not okay in the eyes of God. That's sexual assault. And some of the consequences of that is she's pregnant. Now David's in a pickle. So no one could imagine that she would get pregnant with Uriah on the battlefield. I mean, people knew where babies came from even way back then. So David does something else to try to cover up his sin. He sends messengers out to the battlefield to bring Uriah home. And he thinks maybe if this, if this warrior comes home from battle filled with passion and fighting and thankfulness that he's not in the battle, he'll come home and sleep with his wife. And then we'll send him back into battle and everything will be okay and David will be covered. It will be good. But when Uriah, a man who's trying to please God, comes home, he doesn't understand why he's taken away from battle. He refuses to go to his house while the, the war is still going on. So the story tells us that he, he literally covers himself and sleeps on the steps of the kingdom with the servants until David says, you can go ahead back to the battlefield. David's livid because his plan's not working out. So he sends Uriah back to the battlefield, but he sends him with a sealed message that's not for him to see, but it's for his commanding officer. And in that sealed letter, David made it a point to tell the commanding officer, I want you to put Uriah in the most dangerous position in battle, and while all your men are out there, I want you to withdraw and leave him to be killed. And that's exactly what happens. So sin begets sin begets sin. If you don't walk away from today with another point other than this, I want you to know that sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. Do you hear that? Sin takes you farther than you want to go, it keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. And how does God perceive what David is doing it says in 2 Samuel verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 27, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. And eventually a man named Nathan, the same prophet who announced David would be king, came to reprimand him for his sins. And it finally occurred to David that what he was doing was wrong. David was playing God to try to get his way. David was acting in a way that, that he'd had no authority to act in order to get what he wanted to try to cover himself and justify his behavior. And the Lord considered what, it was, what he had done evil. And David cried out to God, I have sinned against the Lord. You see, church, while our sins often affect other people, they always offend God. 
while our sins often affect other people, they always offend God. And God is deeply offended. But David cries out. And do you know what God did? God forgave David. That doesn't mean there weren't major consequences for David's actions. And as the Bible story unfolds and we see more of that, we grieve the collateral damage of the sin on top of sin on top of sin. There are consequences, but David is forgiven and he's assured that there will not be condemnation. Years after this experience, David looks back on the magnitude of God's love and he shouts in verses 1 and 2 about the joy of forgiveness in order that his readers would hear and want to be forgiven too. And while you might be thinking, but Gabe, you don't know what I've done. Or Gabe, you don't know what's been done to me. Forgiveness isn't in the cards in my life story. Remember who's speaking, a real person at a real point in history. King David is speaking with authority about forgiveness in Psalm 32 as someone whose sins are forgiven. When we talk about sin, sin is a failure to let God be God and placing something or someone in God's rightful place of supremacy. Sin is a failure to let God be God and it's placing something or someone else in God's rightful place of supremacy. David was making himself God by asserting that he was going to take what he wanted, by asserting that he no longer needed to go out with the army into battle, by asserting that he could take the life of Uriah that was not his to take. Over and over again, there's this pattern of David believing he is in a a position to make rules that only God could make. I believe a lot of us do that in the everyday stuff of life. When we neglect to honor God, to think about what would honor God in our lives. And instead we choose our own paths. It's very relatable. So let me ask you, do you believe that sin is awful? Do you believe that sin is awful? Let me rephrase that a little bit. Do you believe that your sin is awful? Not just the sin that you read about in the news, the really bad people that end up at the really bad places the evil dictators, the child predators. Yes, they are evil. But do you believe your own sin is offensive to God? And do you believe that forgiveness for your sin is the greatest gift that God offers you? If you do, that will affect the way you live. David's lived without it, and he sees that with it, his joy is restored. When I was a young child, I considered myself a pretty good kid. That was all relative to my brother who made it easy to seem like I was a pretty good kid. Uh, But I definitely had my instances. And one of the first occasions I can remember uh, where I realized I wasn't as good as I thought I was um, was when my parents were enforcing this really harsh rule that whatever you took to eat, you had to finish. I know, tyranny, it was was a bit oppressive. uh, But they had this rule and they implemented it. And while I liked to be a rule follower as a kid, I was notorious at breakfast for taking more cereal and milk than I could eat. And the punishment, the harsh punishment for my crime was that Gabe, the extrovert, had to sit at the table by himself when everyone left. It was cruel and unusual. 
But this is a true story. I, I remember a time when I sat there thinking to myself, I've got to get out of this. So little me took my bowl of cereal to the sink, lifted it up and poured it in and put the empty bowl and the spoon on the side of the sink to show evidence that I had finished my cereal. And then I went to play. My mom found me playing. She said, Gabriel, did you finish your breakfast? I said, yeah, mom. Finished my breakfast. She asked me the same question. Gabriel, did you finish your breakfast? Yeah, mom. Look, an empty bowl. Then she asked me the same question in a very different way. Maybe some of you can identify this with this. She said, Gabriel Nathan DeGarmo, did you finish your breakfast? Like she pulled out the full name, abort, abort. What wizardry did she use to figure out that I had not finished my breakfast? She knew and it was clear to her and to me. And I had to give in. See, my mom had a unique perspective. She could see into the sink. With my limited perspective, I thought my wrongdoing was hidden and I lied to keep it covered up. But my lies didn't hide anything. All they did was fracture my relationship with my mother. In the New Testament, John, one of Jesus' friends, writes, If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. One of the many things about God that makes him like any other being in the universe is his perspective. I'm going to teach you a 50-cent word if you don't know it, but I'm going to tell you how to use it. God is omniscient. He is the only being in the universe that is omniscient. He knows everything about everything. There's no hiding from God. He sees everything, even the motivations that come from within us, and he never looks away. God has a unique perspective which means no matter how quickly you delete your search history, no matter how harmless the little bit of gossip seemed, no matter if your boss didn't find out you slacked off, no matter if you did actually have a little bit of cash in your wallet, you just didn't want to give it to the poor person who asked you. No matter if you just looked and fantasized, but you didn't act on it. No matter if your jealousy and bitterness only lives in your head. No matter if you cursed the person on I-35 from your car and they never heard you. God still sees, God still hears, because he's omniscient. And when we say we don't need forgiveness, when we don't admit that we are sinners, we make God out to be a liar. And that doesn't cover us. All it does is fracture our relationship with our Savior King. When we hide our sin from him, we make God a liar by saying we don't need his forgiveness. And all it does is break our relationship. And apart from a relationship with God, our lives are joyless vacuums. We try to cling to joy, but it's impossible without God. Do you believe that sin is awful? But do you believe that your sin is awful and that forgiveness is the greatest gift that God offers you? There are two broad types of sin. There are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. Sins of commission are doing things we shouldn't do that dishonor God. Sins of omission, on the other hand, are not doing the things that we should be doing to honor God. 
Sin is any action or any motivation that opposes God, whether it's a sin of commission or a sin of omission. And throughout the story of the Bible, we see over and over again that there is no one righteous, no, not even one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the world that we live in is tainted by this thing called sin, which we're all guilty of. If you have trouble believing that that you're a sinner or that that the decisions that you make actually have as much collateral damage as that of King David that we're talking about, I want you to consider this. If God never disagrees with you, you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Throughout our day-to-day lives, God disagrees with us in the trajectory of our lives. And he wants us to turn back to his trajectory for us. But if God never disagrees with you, there's a really good chance that you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping an idealized version of yourself that's always right, that never needs to seek forgiveness. We're all guilty. But King David with authority says, and still the same forgiveness and joy afforded to him is available to you and me. That's good news. The joy can be restored. David goes on to tell us how to tap into the joy of forgiveness. He tells us his own story. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. David's talking about the power of confession, which is the path to joy and forgiveness. What does he say about the power of confession David compares his hiding his sin to life-sucking pain and exhaustion. And of course he does because it's really hard work to hide from an all-knowing, ever-present being. (laughs) But that's what his life was geared towards. And it's exhausting him trying to hide. One Bible teacher says, Shame is to the conscience what pain is to the body. It tells us that something is wrong and must be made right or things will get worse. You hear that? Shame is to the conscience what pain is to the body. It tells us that something is wrong and must be made right or things will get worse. Shame is so powerful because in the depths of our soul, we believe that the greatest fear in life is to be fully known and not loved. While our greatest desire is to be fully known and loved. But we're afraid that if people really knew us inside and out, that they would cease to love us. You believe that. I know you do. That's why when we go on a first date, we don't unleash our crazy all at once. We unleash our crazy over time. We drip it out because we're afraid if they really knew us, they wouldn't be coming back for more dates. I think that's also why we have sayings like, dance like nobody's watching, because we know we're a shame-based people. And while the radio's kicking and you think you look just like Beyonce or JT, you know that if someone's watching you, they just see you. And if they just see you, you're going to be ashamed. 
Now think how much truer that is when it comes to your sin. We are a shame-based people that cover ourselves over and over again. But what we long for is to be covered. How does David say things must be made right? He talks about this process of confession. Confession comes with it a lot of baggage. The act of confession has been abused and misused in some traditions. So I think it's important that we take a moment to say what confession is not, but really elevate what confession is so that we can experience the joy that David is talking about that comes from forgiveness. Confession is not the act of talking to a priest or a church leader. Confession is primarily a conversation about admitting God is right about the state of your heart to God himself. There doesn't have to be a third party involved in confession. Now, can there be other people involved in the act of confession? Absolutely there can. We see in this story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that God sent the messenger Nathan to illuminate for David how he had been sinful. And in Nathan's presence, David cries out, I have sinned against my Lord. There's another person that's a part of the equation showing where he went wrong and there to hear his forgiveness. Do we need a third party in confession? No. Can it be good? Yes. It can also be good when we confess our sins to the people that we've offended because it gives them an opportunity to seek reconciliation with us. But the act of confession is not relegated to you talking to a priest or some church leader. Confession is not penance or a price to pay for your sin. While we work our way into sin and its consequences, we cannot work our way out of it. So confession isn't an act of penance or a price that we pay. Confession is not just getting something off your chest or clearing the air. One of the strangest things that I'm, I'm, I get to participate in on the regular is when someone who's, who's uh, either usually unchurched or they might come from a Catholic background might hear that I'm a pastor and they'll suddenly change the way they talk to me. And some people will just start divulging the things that they've kept hidden to me because they're used to this, this practice of confession to a priest. And they'll tell me all these things that are going on in their life that they've hidden from other people. And then before I have an opportunity to respond and talk about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he author, offers by grace through faith in him, I'll, I'll be told something like, man, I feel so much better after talking to you. Let me say the act of confession does not take away our gar garbage. The act of confession just takes the lid off of it and lets the stink come out a little bit. Confession by itself doesn't suddenly make us right with God. However, confession is admitting that God is right about the state of our hearts, that we're in desperate need of a Savior to provide us forgiveness. Confession itself doesn't kill sin, but it does drag it into the light and weaken it. Confession should be done quickly and frequently, David teaches us. And this is a man who waited and it ate away at his soul. See, the truth is that God's kindness in giving us a chance to confess leads us to the next step, which is repentance. That's turning away from our sinful ways and turning back toward the path that God has set us on. It's confession and repentance that restores us back to God so that we can begin experiencing the joy of forgiveness 
That's the place where we're safe from harm and separation from God. Hear again what what David said in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. They're not going to be crushed by the weight of sin. And then he says about God, you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with the joyful shouts of deliverance. I love the imagery that God is the hiding place. Because while we once tried to hide our sin, when we confess and repent, God becomes our hiding place. And it is in him that we are safe from harm and guilt and shame. And we are covered by his protection. While we don't have to confess our sins to other people, sometimes it's powerful because it allows others to demonstrate God's love and forgiveness to us. And if you think about it, how can we truly confess our sins to God who has the power to judge us if we can't share our sins with fellow sinners? I actually think it's a good habit for us to have people in our lives that we can talk to about the ways that we're not walking with God in order that they can help be that voice to demonstrate God's love and forgiveness and to redirect us on the path, just like Nathan was called to do for David. In our home, uh, when anyone offends anyone else, and there's four of us, so it happens all the time, uh, we, we try to practice healthier habits So that my kids don't have the same baggage with asking for forgiveness that I have. So anytime an offense happens, we've learned to talk to each other differently. Instead of just apologizing and saying, I'm sorry for this, we tack on the words, I'm I'm sorry for this behavior that I've done that's offended you. Would you please forgive me? That's a revolutionary change. Because you're expressing vulnerability and you're giving someone else a power to wield over you. And you're, you're trusting whatever happens with it. So we say, I'm sorry for what I've done. Would you please forgive me? And we noticed when we implemented this with our kids that that a lot of the times, uh, whoever was being offended would respond with, it's okay. You know what's wrong about that? Is that it's not okay. It's not okay when we've been hurt by other people. So instead of just apologizing and hoping things get better, We try to implement this practice of asking for forgiveness. And then the person in the position of power says, I forgive you. And that's when relationships can be reconciled. When the offender and the offended are working together for the glory of God and for the good of the relationship. Forgiveness brings joy and confession is the path to experience it. Lastly, we see that forgiven people Share the good news of forgiveness. Listen to how excited David is in these last few verses. I will instruct you and show you on the way to go. Who's he talking to? All the people under his rule and all the readers that come after him. David says, I will instruct you. I will show you the way to go with my eye on you. I will give you counsel. I'm going to help you not make the mistakes that I made. Life's too short to make them all on your own. Learn from other people. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding that must be controlled with a bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David is elated. 
with a joy that comes with forgiveness. And he wants to share it in order that others would experience it. We actually have objective, concrete data that reveals that the same truth happens today. That forgiven people want to share the good news of forgiveness. There's a research group called Lifeway Leadership. And uh, they recently did a 10-year study on these things called the spiritual disciplines. These practices for everyday life that help us connect with God and live in relationships uh, with other people. And of all the spiritual disciplines, one is closely related to evangelism. Evangelism is the act of sharing the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done and inviting other people to trust and follow him. One spiritual discipline is closely related to evangelism. Do you know what it is? It's not prayer. I found out a lot of Christians pray, but a lot of Christians aren't evangelistic. It's not Bible study. They found out that a lot of Christians do Bible study, but a lot of Christians aren't evangelistic. The one spiritual discipline that was related to evangelism was the ongoing practice of confession. Why is that? Because forgiven people want the good news of forgiveness to be advanced into the lives of others. David is excited to share the good news of forgiveness with the whole kingdom and everyone that would come after him. Is the good news of forgiveness so good to you that you can't help but share it with other people? Forgiven people forgive people and forgiven people share the good news of forgiveness. David doesn't bottle up his joy and keep it to himself. It bursts forward like a flood and he wants the whole kingdom to share in it. We should recognize that forgiveness is not enabling people to hurt or harm you. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation between the offended and the offender. Sometimes you can't make that happen. Forgiveness is choosing to not hold someone's penalty over them. If you've been hurt, unforgiveness doesn't stop the pain, it spreads it. Forgiving people let God run the universe. They let God punish wrongdoers as he wills, and they let God show mercy as he wills too. Do you hear that? Forgiving people let God run the universe. They let God punish wrongdoers as he wills, and they let God show mercy as he wills too. And faith allows us to face wrongdoing in light of God's sovereignty. Like David, once we see ourselves as people who need God's mercy, we will become much more likely to show mercy to others. Forgiven people want others to experience the good news of forgiveness. I love the verbiage that David uses in verse 10. He says, many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Faithful love is unconditional, one-way love based on the character of the giver, not the merit of the receiver. This is love that overwhelms you, not because you deserve it, but because the one who has it wants to give it so badly to you. While our greatest fear is to be fully known and not loved, our greatest desire is to be fully known and loved. But that's really difficult while we're sinners. And yet we see God who knows us better than any being in all of creation move toward us. 
we see God move toward David through the person of Nathan. And we see God move toward humanity so much more in the person of Jesus Christ. The one righteous man in the history of the world who knew no sin taught forgiveness and extended forgiveness so much so that he was crucified for claiming that he had the power to forgive. A power that was reserved only for God. So he was nailed to the cross because he claimed to be able to forgive. And even while he's hanging on his bloody, treacherous cross and being mocked by those who put him there, he has the strength to utter the words, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. If you have difficulty believing that you can be forgiven, if you have difficulty believing that you can extend forgiveness, you need only look to Jesus to see how awful sin is, but how awesome God's love and forgiveness are in Jesus Christ. Where do we go from here? What does this mean for us? Well, if, if you're here today and this idea of, of forgiveness from God, restoring your joy is new to you, I, I encourage you to take a moment and begin that process that David outlined for us. Just confess that God is right about the state of your heart. Admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Maybe it's sins of omission. Maybe it's sins of commission. Whatever it is, we're all in the same boat. Confess. Talk to God from where you are. And, and allow him to turn you from your way to his way. If that's you, I encourage you to talk to the person that you came with. Tell them about it. Talk to me after the service is over. That's the beginning of your joy being restored in the Lord and being a Christ follower. Now, on the other hand, most of us come to this place week in and week out because we're Christ followers who want Christ to rule over the parts of our lives that are still dark. What does this message of forgiveness mean for us? We're going to give you an opportunity right now to take time from your seat to practice this gift of God that is confession. 